better day there we go hey good morning morning open your bibles this time to uh we usually go to romans chapter 12 right but today we're going to do a little side detour on our journey in discipleship we're going to start with romans 12 but we're going to spend most of our time in first timothy first timothy chapter 6 so go to the end of your bible turn left and start backing up a little bit and you'll bump into first second timothy first timothy chapter 6 is the passage of the day. My name is Pastor Dale. If you're new to Seacoast, welcome. I'd love to meet you out in the plaza and um, get to know you a little better. Coffee, donuts are on me today, if you're new. Coffee's on me every week, but uh, anyway. So turn in the Word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your Word. Thanks for the truth in it. Thanks that we can learn from it. Um, Okay, God, I want to talk about money today, so I just want to get that out, and I want to pray that you would help me to do it with real wisdom. It's a touchy subject, it's a subject that um, can easily be misunderstood, so I thank you, Father. I thank you for the importance of the subject. I thank you for what you teach us about it, so we don't have to just uh, conform to our world, but we can learn your truth. So I pray today would be about learning your truth and you teach us, each of us, beginning with me, whatever you want to teach us. Because I know, God, I worry about it way too much. So I need to listen to myself today. And I thank you that your word is uh, rich and valuable. So teach us today, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're in a series called You Are Here, and it's a series that's a discipleship journey. So the series in which we're talking about how do you respond to the life that you have in Christ. It's a series that begins and began with us emphasizing the fact that you are alive in Christ by grace. And then now you're on a journey. And we've been talking about what the spiritual life of the follower of Jesus ought to look like as we grow in maturity, as we progress along that path toward all the life that Christ wants us to be experiencing and living out in response to that grace. It's not about earning things from God. It's about responding to the God and the gifts that he's already given us. We visited worship, what it means to be a living sacrifice, wisdom, what it means to have a renewed mind, service, what it means to live a lifestyle of a servant and understand that. Last week we talked about love, what it means to be a family. We talked about the one another's, all the love one another statements of Scripture and how that Jesus said that that is the basis for our having a a message to our world and to our culture. It gives us credibility as the people of God. It shows us that we're growing in Christ. How we love one another, Jesus said, is how people know that you're his disciple. Today we're going to move to talk about something Jesus talked about a lot, and that's the area of money. I call it true prosperity. Now, God loves to talk about money. Uh, I'm never surprised how much he talks about money in Scripture. 
So, you know, even if we don't want to talk about money, if you're going to teach the Bible and live by the scriptures, you got to talk about money because Jesus talked about money. In fact, not just Jesus. Let me just give you one example of how important it is. I love the fact that when God came up with the top 10, the 10 commandments in the Old Testament, even he worked his way through the Old Testament, 10 commandments. Don't turn there with me, but just listen. Exodus chapter 20, if you want to write the reference down, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Now, when he walks through the Ten Commandments, these are all pretty important things, right? I mean, this is his short list of what really reflects the character of God. It's a list that convicts us because we know we can't live this on our own. But it shows us some of the, the, the top commandments of, of, of in, in, on the heart of God. And he starts, of course, with, hey, don't, don't have other gods. Don't, you know, I am the Lord your God, verse 2. Don't have other gods before me, boom. Uh, don't make for yourself other idols, boom. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Boom. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Boom. Honor your father and mother. Boom. And then he starts into these real short lists of very important things. Hey, make sure don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness or lie to your neighbor. Boom, 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 boom. And then the final one of the Ten Commandments and the people, you got a picture now. Moses has come down off the mountain after meeting face to face with God, getting his Ten Commandments, getting the law of God, and now he's delivering it to the people and they're listening. And he's just clicking all these off. And he goes through, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. Then he says, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house. In fact, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. (laughs) <laughs> that's in it good you got to see the humor in this don't just look at your neighbor's house and say i wish i had a house like that but you know when his wife comes out to get the newspaper don't covet her either okay so don't get hung up on the neighbor's wife or the neighbor's house and then he gets and, and for some reason after all these commandments that were so short don't lie don't steal don't commit adultery don't you know boom 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 he comes to this one and he dwells on it he says don't covet your neighbor's house your neighbor's wife your neighbor's male servant, your neighbor's female servant. In fact, don't cover his, don't covet his ox. His ox is better than your ox. I like this next one. Don't covet his donkey. Now, what were donkeys used for back then? Answer? Yeah, transportation. So what he's saying is don't covet your neighbor's car, especially when the donkey has its rear end you know, branded BMW, you know, I mean, don't just cause he's got a German donkey instead of a, or a Japanese donkey instead of your American donkey made in Detroit. Okay. Don't covet that. In other words, don't get hung up on greed or coveting all this other stuff that you don't have, but they do. Watch what happens next. Don't covet your neighbor's donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor and all the people suddenly perceived the thunder and lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain began to smoke and the people saw the smoking and they trembled and they stood at a distance. <gasps> and see, you gotta get, you got to get this. Here's the deal. God lays down all these commandments. Why does he save coveting till last? See, I think what he's doing is he says, they're going to listen to all these other ones and a lot of the people are going to think, yeah, I'm pretty good there, pretty good there, pretty good there, pretty good there. And then he comes to, don't covet Anything your neighbor has that you don't. Wives, houses, donkeys. And all of a sudden, what do you you think is going on in the heart of the people? 
See, I think what's going on is if I'm there, I'm beginning to think, you know, I'm pretty good at not worshiping false idols. I'm pretty good at this other stuff. I don't work on the Sabbath. I even kind of honor mom and dad. Now, not that we always do those things, but I'm feeling okay, pretty safe, pretty safe. And I come to this one and he starts unpacking what it means not to want stuff you don't have. I think everyone in the crowd is thinking, man, that's probably the one I need to work on. And then the mountain starts to smoke and the lightning starts flashing. And I'm thinking God's getting ready to just kind of consume us. Anyway, that's how I envision it going down. You see, the reality is, I think God saved that one for the last one because he knew that if there was one that would really wake people up to their sinfulness, it's that one. Because I don't know about you, but this is the one I probably struggle with the most. Um, God talks a lot about money. Why? There's 500 verses on faith, 500 verses on prayer estimated in the Bible, rounding it off. One scholar estimated there's 2,350 verses about money. One third of all of Jesus' parables were about money. Now, if there's anything you know about Jesus, was Jesus obsessed with money? I don't think so. I mean, good grief. The guy lived a very simple lifestyle. He didn't own hardly anything. But yet he talked a lot about money. You see, it raises this question as we launch into our message. Why does God talk about money so much? Why does he want me to talk to you about it today? See, I don't think it's because God loves money. I think it's because God loves people. And God knows people love money. Not just money. One person said, I don't really love money. I love all the stuff that it can buy for me. That's why I'm so in debt. If I love money, I'd be holding on to it. So it's probably more properly to think it's not really about money. It's about wanting what we don't have. It's about not being content. It's about wanting more, wanting someone else's, wanting more, better, best. You see, money, the, you know, either making it, spending it, saving it, using it, even giving it, is a huge part of our life. And it has to be. I mean, unless you want to just kind of go sleep on the beach, unemployed, it takes a lot of attention. I think that's true for all of us. So what we're going to do today is talk about how do we get God's perspective on money. Remember, this whole series is you begin by appreciating the fact that you live in the grace of God. And then you want to be a living sacrifice and say, okay, Lord, I want to live out your will. I want to be your follower. I want to be your child. And you live in that grace. You have a new identity in Jesus. You have a new life in Jesus. Uh, But then he begins to say, now and then renew your mind so you don't think like the world, but you are transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might live out and prove what the will of God is, that good and acceptable and perfect plan or will. So each week we've been going back to that because no matter what our topics are, we need to renew the mind and think differently about it, right? So that we are transformed by the Spirit of God who lives in us as we renew our thinking about money, then we can chart a course to live differently. So let's do it again. Let's renew the mind first. How does God think about money? And how does he want us to think about it? And then how do we chart a course 
toward living our lives in Christ's power differently. Here we go. Let's renew the mind first. God's perspective on what I want to call true prosperity. Now, I want to, you know, for me at least, if I were to ask you, do you want to be in poverty or prosperity? And I'll think about it. It may take you a while to figure it out. Do you, do you, would you vote if you could say, okay, God, I can pick utter poverty or extreme prosperity? You want to vote? Utter poverty people, raise your hand. Nobody. Wow. How about extreme prosperity? Raise your hand. How about modest prosperity? Does that bring more of you up that we're feeling guilty about the word extreme? Okay, yeah. I vote for prosperity. Listen to the wisdom of God. What a great passage. Second Timothy. If I can find it again. Second Timothy. First Timothy. Thank you. It's always good to have a few scholars on the front row. First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 6. Listen to it. But godliness actually is a means of great gain. The word gain is a financial type term. Prosperity. When accompanied by contentment. Now before I go any further, let me give you the context of the beginning of this passage. The context is he's just been warning them about false teachers in verse 1 and following. And he's been telling them in verse 3 and following, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words and teachings of our Lord Jesus with doctrines, uh, you know, then, you know, then uh, with the teaching of Jesus about what it means to be godly and what it means to walk it with Christ. If anyone teaches you false teaching in that stuff, then stay away from them. And he says in verse five, be careful because uh, th- these are people of a depraved mind and, and, and deprived of truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, sometimes you'll bump into false teachers who teach what I would call in modern language a prosperity gospel. In other words, they teach that, you know, if you're godly, wow, that's going to be a great financial gain to you. In other words, wow, you know, if you're godly, then wow, that's a good strategy for getting God to give you more stuff. You know, and so, you know, people that try to make money off of the gospel, people that try to make money or promise you that, you know something, if you are godly, wow, God's going to give you more money. He says, beware of that. And then he turns around and he says, but, and it's kind of like under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is thinking out loud and he says, you know, so people will tell you that, stay away from those people. He says, but, and then he says, let me twist it on them. And he says, but here's what is true. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In other words, godliness really does help you financially when it produces contentment, when contentment is combined with it. When contentment flows out of your godliness, when financial, he's talking about financial things here. When financial contentment flows out of godliness or is combined with godliness, therefore, wow, that is really truly a wise basis for your financial life. It is a means of great gain. So what I want to do is unpack some of this. Again, I unpack stuff every week, so here we go. Number one, true prosperity begins with godliness plus contentment. That's verse six. In other words, contentment seems to be the key to financial wisdom. 
Contentment is the key, which, by the way, shouldn't surprise you because in the Ten Commandments, what was the, what was the problem? The problem that he addressed about money was discontentment, coveting what you do not have, feeling driven that I've got to have more to be happy. And, and, and what he's calling out in the beginning of this passage is if you want to have a goal financially, let your goal be contentment because that's the place where you've got to start. Why is that? Well, because contentment sets you free from a, a bunch of nasty stuff that wrecks your life. Now, I don't have time to teach all these passages, so I've given them to you in your outline. Are you ready? Just write a couple words in. Number one, it sets you free. Contentment sets me free from anxiety so that I worry less. Here's the verse. It's uh, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said this, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or for your body, as to what you're going to put on, what kind of clothes you have. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, Jesus says, don't get stressed over this stuff. Anxiety. Contentment frees you from anxiety. Contentment frees you from greed or coveting so that you can actually enjoy whatever God has given you. Here's the verse. Here it is. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, servants donkeys cars oxes asses the whole thing okay so the reality is that's what he tells you not to to get stressed over don't focus on the donkey okay uh so that's it frees you up from greed number three it frees you from debt and debt is a nasty thing in our life i mean do you like debt or do you like being out of debt let's vote on that one how many people love debt raise your hand Okay, how many would rather be out of debt? Raise your hand. Okay, good deal. So he says, contentment helps you stay out of debt. Because when you're discontent and coveting, you will pull out Visa, MasterCard, your buddies, and you will, you will go there. Okay, but he says, look, stay out of debt. So if you, if, you, if you have contentment, it frees you from anxiety, from greed, from debt that you can live within your means. Um, Proverbs 22, that was the verse. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. So if you want to feel enslaved, just stay in debt, okay? Number four, it frees you from losing it all when you die because you will lay up treasure in heaven if you're content. First Timothy 6, 19, we're going to come back to that verse later. Storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It's talking about eternal treasure. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But the idea is, you know, if, if, you, uh, if, you, if you are driven to just spend all your time, energy, money on stuff of this earth, you will, as I'll show you in a minute, die broke. Whereas when you invest in the kingdom of God and live with those priorities... You actually, according to Jesus, you lay up what's called treasure in heaven. Now, I don't have time to go into what that is, except that he's talking about rewards. He's talking about the fact that your eternal existence, to some degree, is different. There are eternal rewards that you never lose. Because Jesus said, these are things that don't go away. Um, you know, so, you know, you're not saved by these rewards. You are saved by grace. But how we live our life on planet Earth does affect our eternity and that's clear in scripture and it's these things called treasure in heaven or eternal rewards or there's different language but jesus says smart people pay attention to it number one true prosperity begins with the goal of combining your godliness in other words a healthy relationship with jesus christ that nurtures and is combined with contentment 
That's the goal of our morning. Number two, true prosperity is built on eternal worth, not temporal wealth. Let me show this to you from the passage. Pick it up again in verse 7. He says, uh, Godliness is a means of great gain accompanied by contentment. Verse 7. For this is uh, the first Timothy chapter six passage, by the way, here's here's what I'm going to do most Sundays. I'm going to pop up on the screen other verses so you don't have to run all over the place. But I want you to try to get in the habit of bringing your Bible open into the primary passage. And we've got Bibles on the tables in the back. If you don't own one, pick one up coming in the door because I want you to see this In fact. I'd rather you mark it up even here we go. He says, for we have brought nothing into this world and so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. You see what? Here's the truth that that is being taught. Let me illustrate it. It says there's several facts in this little short verse. Number one, your net wealth is temporal. And at birth and death, it's always the same, which is what? Zero. Now you say, Dale, okay, this is pretty obvious, but it's true and it should affect the way we live let me illustrate this with three people i met one guy who's living on welfare and i kind of decided to here he is this is his life he starts with zero and he kind of builds a little bit you know but but he's living real close to survival but then when he dies he goes back to zero and he goes in it goes into eternity zeroed out okay now this um Man on welfare has a doctor. Let me show you the doctor. Okay, this is my brother, the doctor. He's a surgeon. My brother is the yellow line. He makes a lot more money than that. But you know something? When he dies, his net wealth goes back to zero. Amazing. Now, my brother uses a computer. He likes a computer. He's not up to date enough to use an Apple, so he's using a a PC. If he's listening to this sermon, he needs to come up to speed. But the reality is this. So, So Bill Gates gets a slice of my brother's income every time he buys a microsoft product so let me show you bill gates here's bill gates bring him up here we go boom boom there's bill gates wow no bill gates is worth like you know billions right so you know he's worth multiple millions billions of dollars but guess what wow bill gates dies and you know something the moment that he dies he has the same net wealth as the homeless guy now this is a reality And when you could put you and me on there, we're all somewhere in that range. But that's truth. Now, let me talk to you about net worth. As I'm using the phrase today, I'm talking about from a spiritual perspective, okay? A lot of people say to you financially, hey, man, I wonder what he's worth. I wonder what Bill Gates' net worth is. Now, I can tell you what his net wealth is, but let me show you net worth from a spiritual perspective is a different term. When you talk about net worth... Your net worth is eternal and it grows as you invest your life and your wealth for God. So let me show you these three people again. So net worth is eternal. We're talking about something that is of value that will literally go beyond the grave with you. Your net worth, your true net worth, these are the guys' net wealth, is look more like, more like this, okay? This person with the round, they, they, they come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and immediately, in Christ, you have worth. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you earn anything. But in Christ, you have heaven. You have worth. You're a child of God. You're a beloved child of God. You're a co-heir with Christ. So you become a very rich individual eternally just by coming to faith in Jesus. 
But what today's passage is going to teach us is that your net worth does not stop there. Because the more you invest your life in the things of the kingdom of God and you invest your net wealth in the kingdom of God, your time, your talents, your money, the more you do that, you actually earn rewards. And therefore, your real eternal worth continues to grow. And in fact, it even continues to grow after you're dead. Because even when you're dead and you're in heaven, if you have done a good job of building into people's lives around you and helping them come to Jesus and you have a multiplying effect and, and, and your investment for the kingdom of God can actually grow after you are dead. Wow, that's pretty cool. So that's why net worth is what we ought to focus on. It also tells me this, my true prosperity is measured not by what I have, as much as by what I give away. Not just my money, but my life. Number three, fact number three. Here's fact number three from our passage. This is a big surprise. There is little, if any, connection between net wealth and true worth. And at times, they can even be inverted. In other words, you would think, well, wow, I mean, if I have more wealth in this world, I can have more eternal worth. Would kind of make sense, right? Until you read this next passage. Follow with me. Pick it up again in verse 9. Here we go. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Wow, that's a warning. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a grief. Now see, what this tells me is, is pretty staggering. Because what he's saying is, wow, you've got to be really careful when you're interacting with this thing called money and wealth. Because what he's saying is this, it's actually easier to earn true worth sometimes when you have less wealth. Because wealth has this enticing, tempting temptation that comes along with it that, but, you know, that can get you into trouble spiritually and, and get you off track. He says some have even have been a led, led even a, away from the faith because of their love of money. Now, Pay attention to something. Is money really the problem? And that's fact number four. And the answer is no. Because here's what he's saying. Our net wealth is a valuable tool on loan from God. Think of money or wealth, possessions, as things on loan. They all belong to God. And they would know that because you don't take it with you. Okay? The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. So everything you own, everything you possess is really not yours, it's God's. But God loans it to you. You may have a job to help you earn it. You may work and, and produce crops as they did in biblical times if you're a farmer. And, and your crop, you labor, you work for it, but God provides the crop. He provides the rain. He provides everything. He provides your job, whatever. But it's all from God. And and it can either be used to build or to, or to destroy our net eternal worth. Notice in our passage, it's not money that's the problem. Underline these words. Some 
by wanting to get rich fall into temptation. Some and plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. See, it's the longing for it, gotta have it, coveting, gotta have more of it. I gotta, that, that's what will make my life happy. It's when you buy into that that you are in risk of actually being led into a lifestyle that would lower your eternal worth in terms of rewards as you enter the kingdom of God. So, it's not money that's the problem, it's our relationship to it. So as we begin to chart our course, the rest of this passage begins to give me some really neat wisdom on how to do that. So let's chart the course and continue into the passage. So what do you do when you realize, wow, you know, I, I need to nurture contentment and I got to be careful of my love of money because that's going to get me into trouble. So how do I chart my course? Well, look at verse 11 through 19. He says, but, so instead of the love of money, here's the solution. How do you chart a course to invest for what I call true prosperity? But flee from these things, you man of God. Man, see, it roots it back in our identity. Because you are now a man or woman or child of God. You're not just a, a person of this planet. You, you're a spiritual being, uh, a child of God, a part of the kingdom of God, uh, saved by the grace of God. Uh, you're a new person in Christ, right? So as a new person, here is his instruction for you to chart your course. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, and now listen to this. Can I read this the way he wrote it? I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of, of Jesus Christ who testified the good confession before Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which he will bring about at the proper time. And that, now and he starts talking about Jesus. He, he's teaching on money, but he starts talking about Jesus. And listen what he says. Uh, this Jesus, uh, the appearing of Jesus. Uh, I lost my place. Here we go. Verse 15. The appearing of Jesus, who will come at the proper time. He who is blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings. means the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen and no one can see. To him be honor and glory and dominion. Amen. Oh, wait a minute. i got to get back to money. Now, what's going on here? I don't, I don't read it that way to make you laugh. I read it that way to help you picture what's going on. Here's what he's saying. Okay, money can be such a problem in our lives that the solution, first of all, is these are spiritual issues. That if you're going to succeed in keeping money in its proper place and letting it be a tool for God and not something that ruins your life, then it's really a, a battle that involves faith, hope, and love. Let me show it to you. It involves love. You need to nurture a greater love for Jesus if you're going to not love money. Another way to say it is this. The secret to maintaining your financial affairs on earth is to maintain a love affair 
with heaven and Jesus. See, people think, okay, I don't want to love money. And if you go out here today and you say, I am not going to love money anymore, you'll fail. You can't outrun the love of money. You live in a culture that will immerse you in why you should love money and want the neighbor's donkey. Right? Okay? So the reality is this. You can't outlove the love of money unless you love something more. Don't try to run from the love of money. Run to the love of Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's why, see, the Apostle Paul was able to manage his love of money only because he had a greater love for Jesus. He said, man, this Jesus guy, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, he's coming back. Woo! You know, and I, you know when he got so excited about Jesus that the love of money stayed in its place. See, this is why I like teaching about money. I love doing sermons on money, even. A lot of pastors don't want to talk about this. Because I know that if I'm going to help you have the right relationship with Jesus, I, I have to talk about money. And so do you. In your life groups, in your small groups, in your mentoring, you need to talk honestly with each other about money. Or you will never become spiritually mature. It's a strong statement, but I believe it. Because it's directly connected with how deep do you love Jesus. Now it gets even better. Secondly, focus on your hope. He says, before he gets into his uh, holy, holy rant about Jesus, <laughs> is there such a thing as a holy rant, Steve? Is that okay? Okay, good, thank He Before that, he says this, pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight of the faith, verse 12. In other words, what are you living for? See, that's your hope. What are you living for? Fight for a greater cause that is the kingdom of God. Now, when I'm fighting for a greater cause, then I'm less tempted to live for a lesser cause. Make sense? Yeah, makes sense. Number three, your faith is central. Jump down to verse 17 with me. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, there it is, but on God who richly supplies us with all of our things to enjoy. In other words, your faith asks the question, who are you trusting in? He says, it's, don't trust in your savings, trust in the Savior. I mean, isn't that, that's easy, easy to remember. Now, what makes you feel at peace financially? If you have enough money in the bank, your savings, or if you know, by golly, as a child of Jesus Christ, I'm under his care, under his love. As long as I walk in obedience and follow him, I, I got no financial concerns. Because whether I go through ups or downs financially, have a job, lose a job, all that happens in life, Jesus Christ never, ever leaves me. And he has promised to care for me. That doesn't mean I don't go through tough times. But where is my trust? Where is my faith? So trusting in the Savior, not the savings. And what flows out of all of that is what I call extreme generosity, where you start laying up your treasure in heaven. Look at it, verse 18. He says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed because your real life is going to be spent in eternity, not here. Generosity is God's goal. Now, how are we doing here in America? You know, the facts, uh, 
the habits of Americans are not encouraging here. The average American, they say, gives about 1.7% of their income to charity. The really scarier part is that lower income people average 3%, middle income people average 2%, higher income people average 1%. Because the more you have, the more you want. It's, it's a paradox, but it's true. I think we at Seacoast fall into the same thing because we're victims of our culture. Not victims totally, but we live in a culture that encourages us to always say the more we have, the more we need. So what is God's plan for nurturing joyful generosity? What is his plan? Uh, first thing I would say is I don't have time to teach this this morning. So go back and listen to the sermon. Here it is if you want to write it down. The Joy of Generosity from 7-1-2012. And you can enjoy listening to a, a whole different passage where I taught on this in 2012. I think it will really help you grow if you do that this week. So just make note of it. Okay? Got it? Got it? Okay, got it. But let me give you the short version in one minute of what I taught in that sermon. If you study the whole of Scripture, here's what you find. In the Old Testament... The beginning point of giving and generosity was to give 10% of everything God gives you. As you receive your crops or your income, every time you harvest, every time you receive, the first 10% you give back to God because he's the supplier of everything. And then you live and save and live off the other 90. Very simple formula. Now, in the Old Testament, they also had different times where they gave other gifts to God, other offerings to God, other tithes to God. But it always began with this foundational tithe of 10%. It was the first fruits that they offered back to God. Now, in the New Testament, I don't find that direct command repeated. But it causes me to ask the question, so should I be tithing today? Here's my answer. In the New Testament, here's what we find. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is a great passage. You'll, you'll, see, me, you'll see me teach it in this sermon. But it uses words like this. Um, be liberal in your giving. Be bountiful in your giving. Trust God as you give. Give to God first as he prospers you. Uh, always set aside for him. And even be sacrificial in your giving. Now when I look at words like sacrificial, trusting God, being bountiful, being liberal, it is hard for me to imagine how living under the blessings of God's grace in one of the wealthiest cultures in history, that God's will for my giving would be anything less than what he asked of a poor Jew living under the law. So even if the poorest of poor were encouraged to give their first 10% back to God, living under the law, I have come to believe, and I would love to talk one-on-one -on -one with anyone who disagrees with it, and we'll have a little dialogue. But I have a deep conviction in my heart that for me not to return at least as much as the poor Jew under the law should give is me abusing grace. I think the grace of God calls me to be more generous, not less than when I live under the law. So that's why for my family and I know our elders feel that this is a great wisdom principle of Scripture that my challenge is I think God's will is that we start with that 10% challenge. 
Now, I know that rattles many of you because there's a lot of fuzzy thinking in the culture about tithing. So let me give you a little taste of some of how the culture. Let's consult some other people on tithing. Watch the screen. I give to God by enjoying what he has given me. Okay? I mean, do you really think he expects something back? Now, I know there's a lot of people at church that would not understand this line of reasoning. That's why, just to make things simple and not to cause any controversy, I like to carry what I call the little empty envelope. All right? You see, when the plate gets passed, I bloop, put it in there like that. The deacon's counting the money. They only know me as the crazy empty envelope guy, but the people sitting around me, clueless. I win, they win, God wins. No one gets hurt because no one knows. God knows. Huh? Let me ask you a question, huh? How's your mutual fund? Hey, for that matter, how's all your funds? Has the fund left your funds, huh? Has your do-re-me taken a W-A-L-K, huh? (laughs) What if I told you that I knew about an investment you could make that the return would be mind-boggling? And it's promised. It's guaranteed. I know what you're saying. There's no guarantees. This one's guaranteed, okay? Malachi 3.10. So it says in the Old Testament. It says, test me. Give to God, and he will give you back. It goes like this. I give this. He gives this. I give this. He gives this. I give this. Up right up there. He keeps giving. I can't outgive God. How crazy is that? Do I love him? Sure, whatever. I'm just saying, if you give, he gives back. I tithe. But just not like in the form of a 10% check, per se. Let me tell you what I mean. When I go to church on a Sunday morning, they're selling donuts. I buy some. Boom. That's a tithe. When my whole Sunday school class wants donuts, and I, out of the goodness of my heart, buy a whole bunch for the Sunday school class, boom. That's another tithe. But it's not about me spending money. It's about the smile on people's faces. That, my friends, is tithe enough for me. Case in point, the church was having date nights where we could take our spouse out for an evening, and they were charging $25 for child care. Boom shakalaka tithe. I'll tell you what the biggest tithe was. When I spent over $100 on our meal, and my wife was grinning ear to ear, that, my friends, a tithe. I, w- I would like to give. I would, okay? But everything right now is just crazy i mean just crazy you know i mean not normal crazy really crazy you know and if after i paid my bills and took care of the things that i need and want then i would i would consider giving something but not now is crazy we're we're gonna give later we've already talked about it i mean down the road we'll be crazy givers but right now it's just crazy yeah i have money that's a fact but you know what it's a hard thing between me and the lord and the pastor because he needs to know what i'm giving now that we have this little building campaign going on if you know what i'm saying and pastor i'd give a little bit more i'd give a little something something if you'd have that music minister sing a couple more hymns now and then huh hey what's this watch this is that a benjamin i think it is benji likes hymns come on you want it ah, come on pastor do what i say huh ah, ah, Yeah, Benji, Benji likes him. So how do we wrap this up today? Make note of that page, but anyway. Before the team comes up to lead us in some worship, here's where I want to encourage you as you go into the week. Number one, join me and just assess. How am I doing? You know, the purpose of the morning isn't to make you feel guilty. The purpose of the morning is to help you understand your heart, your faith, hope, and love, and where it's placed, and 
How do we grow in this area? We've all got room to grow in this area of our lives. Um, assess where I am. I showed you this, so I'm not going to teach it in depth, uh, but I gave it to you in a box. Look on the outline. There's a information in the box. Just identify that. Take that and read that this evening. But here's how I kind of see a progression in my own life as I approach giving or in other people's lives. I think a lot of times as a, as a person new to the faith, you begin by kind of tipping God. But what I mean by that is when you tip God, just bring these up. Here we go. I give spontaneously, weak, occasionally, based on how I feel that day or what's in my wallet. If the wallet's empty, I, don't, I can't give. If the wallet's got an extra 20 or a 5, I plop it out. But that's how many people approach giving. And let me say, if you've never been taught like you're being taught today in this sermon, you know, you've probably felt very generous. After all, if you give a 5-buck tip in the restaurant and you give God a 20 that feels pretty generous if you've never been taught the biblical teaching about stewardship and, and, and giving. So before you beat yourself up, just realize maybe that's where you are. Other people kind of go beyond that to what I call targeting giving. In other words, I decide, okay, I'm going to give a preset dollar amount if I have it at the end of the month. I want to give 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks, whatever. I'm going to give a preset amount but, you know, I've got to kind of wait till the end of the month and see if it's there. If it's there, I give it. If it's not there, I don't give it. I think a lot of people give this way. I don't think either of those are in God's will for sure, okay? Let's go to the next one, trusting. I begin finally to understand I need to trust God. So now I begin to give a regular amount, maybe a fixed percentage. Maybe it's 2%, 3%, 5%. I don't know what it is. But I begin to give a regular amount or a regular percentage but now the difference is I say, I'm going to do that at the beginning of the month or as soon as I get my income. And then I'll trust God and live off the rest. That's what I mean by now you're beginning to trust. That's growth. Next level I already taught on is tithing. And that is, that's when I begin to say, you know something? I want to give God the first 10% of everything I receive. And I'll give that back to him as my first priority and I will adjust my standard of living and live off the rest. I think that's growth. And then you begin to look at the scriptures and you begin to realize, wow, I, I want to do that, but I, I want to give my tithe, but I also want to give other offerings. So now I begin to give 10% perhaps to your church. That's what Becky and I do. And then if I give opportunities to give over and above that to missionaries or friends that need things and you know other other. You know, I, I do other compassion giving perhaps over and above that. And then what we really see in the Bible is even what I would call the next level, which is sacrificial kingdom giving. And the difference there is this. I can do all the rest of it without sacrificing very much. But now I begin to say, you know something? I will actually trim back what I spend on other things in order to give more for the kingdom of God. And that is the giving you see portrayed in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Now, I don't know where you are, but as we go into the future, my challenge is this. Say, God, all of this is really not about finances. It's about us trying to pray through our faith, hope, and love. It's really our faith, hope, and love issue. So, you know, step two is ask God to use money to help you grow in your expression of how much you love God, trust God, and how you want to lay up treasure in heaven. That's a faith, hope, and love issue. This is a spiritual, transforming growth part of your life. 
This is not about helping the church with the budget. I didn't mention the church budget one time today because whether we got an extra million dollars or whether we're in desperate straits has nothing to do with this sermon. It's your spiritual life that I care about. And that's why make it a faith, hope, and love issue this week as you talk it through with your spouse, with your friend, try to decide what you want to do. And then step three is this, and here's my dream. Step three is that each one of us will take one step toward godliness and contentment. One step. What's that look like? It could look different for different people. Just go ahead and bring up that list of suggestions. Okay, here are some things you can talk about. You know, can we set a new percentage goal that's perhaps 1% bigger than we used to give and work toward tithing if you don't feel like you can get there right away? That's what I call first step. Take a first step. Bring up the next one. Here we go. The 1% step. Whatever you're giving right now, I would challenge you to move in the right direction and say, I can give 1% more of my income. If every one of us did that, you'd be shocked at what it would do to empower the kingdom of God. The next one is the big step. Just decide. I want to trust God for 90 days and I want to tithe. For the next 90 days, I want to give 10% of what God gives me. I want to see what happens. And it'll make me make some adjustments, but that's what I would love for you to to do if you really want to see i think if you really want to see growth in your life next one is at least make one sacrifice give up one thing for the next 90 days and take that money and give it to the lord so here's my challenge is what is your next step or are you so content where you are in this area that you say i got no room to grow let me just say myself, Becky and I will make one of these steps. And I just want to encourage you to let God grow you and join me in that. Let's pray. Father God, as the band comes to lead us um, in a closing song, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you that you are so wise on such a tough topic. And I pray, Father, that um, as we go out this week to follow you, as we interact on this topic in our life groups, as we spend time with you, as we do the daily encounters, wow, what a chance. What a chance to really see you grow us as a church in this part of our life. I pray, Father, that we would be a church that whether we have an abundance or whether we're living in poverty, that we are known for generosity. Make us a church of generosity in Christ's name. Father, we uh, give to you. We give to you, as I've just taught, as an expression of our faith, our hope, and our love in Christ's name. Amen.